You can tell it's Christmas because we are quite decorated in here. Beautiful lights, poinsettias. We've got the nativity scene up here. And, you know, I don't want to nitpick, but there are several elements of the traditional nativity scene that I'm sure you're aware may or may not really belong in the Christmas scene. I'm talking, of course, about the wise men. We spoke about this a couple weeks ago on Sunday morning. It's unlikely they were there at the same time as the shepherds on the night or morning or afternoon that Jesus was born. You, you, you can't really put the text together to get exactly there, but there's no harm in putting them there. All of these animals are suspect. You've got the donkey, of course. That's assuming that on the way from Nazareth to Bethlehem, they rode a donkey. You're always pictured with a donkey. I love the donkey. May or may not have been there. You got a shepherd bringing a sheep, like maybe one of his favorite sheep, or maybe like a problem sheep. May or may not have been there. Certainly the camel would only have been there in the uh, instance that the, the wise men were there. But there is one creature that absolutely must be at the nativity scene that belongs, and that is the dragon. How many of you have a dragon in your nativity scene? Now, this particular dragon, I don't know, size-wise, I would have liked, I got him at Michael's Crafts. I went in there, and I looked around, and there was one dragon, and I said to somebody working there, I said, can you tell me, do you have a bigger one that maybe has seven heads? And they were like, dude, whatever we got is there. And I said, could you do me a favor and go in the back and see if you have a bigger dragon that maybe has seven heads? And he's like, fine. And guess what? They didn't. This was the only one they had. But... This one will do to remind us that the dragon is part of the Christmas story. That the dragon ought to be there, at least when we think about the way that the scriptures present this long, drawn-out, epic battle between good and evil that comes to a head in Bethlehem. I mean, if somebody were to just walk in now and see this, and, and let's go, what, what's going on with this pastor? Is he, did he lose a bet? Has he lost his marbles? Is there maybe some kind of game that they play on Christmas? Like, an, you ever play an improv game? In improv, you can never say no. Like, if your, your scene is a dentist office and someone says, hey, are you an alien? You can't say, no, I'm a dentist. You have to say, yes, and, and you have to roll with it. Yes, and I find teeth fascinating or something. Like, someone came in and just said, hey, does this dragon belong in here? Yes, and, well, the answer is, yes, and it's in the Bible, of course. Here in Revelation chapter 12, we have a picture of Christmas from an apocalyptic point of view. We have Christmas, in a sense, from heaven's point of view. Revelation has been described as a picture book showing us a heaven's eye view, the unseen aspect of events that happened on earth, or are happening, or will happen. And here in this passage, which Sean read for us, we see the entire drama of salvation history boiled down into one picture, one little scene, and it looks an awful lot like Christmas. It's not a coincidence. It's not arbitrary 
that we make a big deal out of our Savior's birth. It's not just because they took some Roman holiday about Sol Invictus and made it into a Christian holiday, and why is it that we make such a big deal out of it? No, the, the birth of Jesus, as we see it presented in the Scriptures, is the turning point in the ancient epic war between light and darkness, between the dragon and the lamb. It's not exactly the story as we're used to presenting it, but there are familiar elements we have a child being born. That's, I mean, you have to have that, or it's not a picture of Christmas at all. There are stars, but not just one. There's 12, and they're not being followed by wise men. They're just like around somebody's head. You have a shepherd reference, but it's a reference to the baby himself shepherding his people. And we've got angels, but they're not singing. They're fighting in a war in heaven. And I am going to argue that this is closer than you might think to the usual story that we celebrate and rehearse on Christmas. When you read the other gospel accounts, Matthew and Luke, you know what? You don't have an angel choir there either. The angels don't sing at all. They say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Beyond that, they're not called an angel choir. They are called, what? The heavenly host, which means army. Yeah, they're an army because God is making a very big move in the battle against evil here. The Christian story during times of peace and safety, this, this story of Christmas, of Mary and Joseph and little baby Jesus, it is, though we often focus on the sentimental aspects, a story of conflict from the very beginning. It's often presented as if the real bad guy in the story is like the no vacancy sign or the innkeeper, neither of which is actually in the Bible. No, the villain in the story is the dragon, as has been the villain from the very beginning of Scripture itself. Going all the way back to the garden. We go back to Genesis 3, verse 15, uh, which Ryan read for us earlier. After the fall, when sin entered the world, the curse is proclaimed upon this, this rock. And, and in the midst of this curse, cursing serpent and woman and man and all who would come after in this uh, kind of heartbreaking but beautiful poetic way, we have nestled in there what we call the proto-euangelion, the first promise of the gospel that yes this the serpent would continue to be troublesome for mankind but there would come one the seed of the woman down the line who would defeat the serpent the serpent would go ahead and grab his heel and and inject him with venom but in the process this man would crush the serpent's head and as that plays out in the old testament it plays out as the dragon's war on the messianic line, trying to keep the Messiah from arising at all. And almost every turn there in the Old Testament, you see the enemy making a move like this. Right off the bat, sin very quickly goes from, oh, ate the wrong fruit, to murdering my brother. And when we see Cain kill Abel, it would seem like, hey, you got two kids that could be this seed, and I just took them all out in one move. By, by tempting and, and by stoking fires of anger and hatred, now one brother has disqualified himself and the other has been removed from the equation. And then God says, no, it wasn't either of them. It will be through the line of Seth. 
In Egypt, Pharaoh is used mightily by the dragon. Just go kill all of the, the infant boys. Kill them so that they will wipe out this entire nation. And yet Moses is saved alive and hidden away and is used to bring the people out of slavery and out of Egypt and into the promised land. David comes up, a, a great anointed king who will be the forefather of the Messiah in the messianic line. And Saul the king tries to kill him more than once. We've been reading on Sunday mornings the book of Esther in which Haman tries to wipe out the entire nation. It happens again and again and again. And all of these things are rolled up into this one picture here in Revelation 12 of a woman and a dragon and all the rest. Because this here is the moment, the, the incarnation, the coming of the Messiah to ransom captive Israel. Now, do you know that word incarnation? That's a very important one to know on Christmas. It means enfleshment, being made flesh, being made physical, being given a human nature. Like in John 1.14, when we read that the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. That's such an important concept that it, it, it makes me sad that it is a kind of remote to many people today. Loving Christmas but not knowing about the incarnation is like loving Independence Day but not knowing what freedom is. Or loving Arbor Day but not knowing what a tree is. This is the core. In, in our, our world today, our, our culture, we still all kind of together lament the commercialization of Christmas, right? Christmas has become all about buying presents and, and uh, all sorts of expensive things and decorating our houses and gaudy things. And we got to get back to the real meaning, which if you watch an after-school special or a very special episode of, I don't know, whatever is the popular sitcom now, it's going to be, let's get back to the roots, which is family and kindness in general and like loving each other and caring for each other. And all those are great, but they actually miss the mark of Christmas entirely unless you start with the incarnation. God becoming flesh and dwelling amongst us. Why is it that in this text, this baby rules with an iron scepter? Because the babe in the manger is God himself. Let's look at these signs then that appear in heaven. Two signs. The first sign that appears... A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Now there's a long-standing debate between Catholics and Protestants about who this woman is. Is she Israel? Seems to be some indicators that way, right? Twelve stars, certainly referencing the twelve tribes of Israel all the way back to the book of Genesis when Joseph has that dream and all of them are represented by stars? Or is she Mary herself, the Virgin Mary? Or is she perhaps the church? I mean, we got 12, there's 12 apostles. And I think the answer to this question is clearly, yes, she is. Right? We, we have here a complex apocalyptic vision in which all these struggles and all of these battles that have happened in this war up to this point are summed up in one picture, but also at the same time, this is a moment in time in which Mary is, in a sense, the perfect representative of the faithful, righteous remnant of Israel. Certainly she was not sinless, not a perfect person, but here she is perfectly faithful when she says, let it be done unto me as you have said to the angel Gabriel and bears the Savior into the world. 
She's pregnant and going into labor. It goes out of its way to tell us that she is experiencing the pain of labor, birth pains. And so we see here in this picture both God keeping his promise that he made all the way back in Genesis 3.15 and the dragon trying to stop him. That's the birth pains. That's the pain, the suffering. Jesus will later also use that same picture as it comes toward the, the second coming, the second advent of Christ. There will be more and more what he calls birth pains. Then is the second sign. This is the one that's usually missing from your nativity scene. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems, on his heads, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, cast them down to the earth. Now, we see Satan's own plan become even more visible here. Not just the labor pains, but the dragon himself. It's Christmas Eve, so I will spare you the deep dive into biblical numerology and apocalyptic imagery. And suffice it to say that the number of heads and the number of crowns indicate to us great power and authority. Seven indicating seeming omnipotence, seeming omniscience. And he gives us several names and kind of titles and roles of the dragon here. He is called Satan, which means adversary, enemy. He is against God and his people. He's called devil, which means accuser. He is making accusations against God's people, like we see him doing in the book of Job or in the book of Zechariah, saying, look at their sins. There's so many sins to point at, and I just love pointing at sins. He's called a great dragon, Fearsome, attacking and devouring. Or as Peter will say in 1 Peter 5, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour this kind of straightforward attack to destroy. Jesus said Satan comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But then in verse 9, he's also called an ancient serpent. Meaning a lot more kind of smooth about things, cunning, seductive, rather than attacking and destroying, leading astray, psyops kind of aspect of this great war. Pointing us back again, of course, to Genesis 3. The serpent was more cunning than any other creature. This reminds us that, that Christmas, the Christmas story, you really got to go all the way back to Genesis 3. I mean, I'm not alone here. Not only do we see this in Revelation 12, but when you look at Matthew's genealogy of the Messiah, he takes him all the way back to David. But when you look at Luke's, he takes him all the way back to Eden, to those first parents who would sin and bring the curse. And in the curse, in the midst of the curse, this beautiful promise of one who is to come. And we're told that the dragon stood waiting for the woman to give birth. And, and of course, this is hard to see in the English, but the stood is in the perfect tense, meaning he got in that position and continued there, waiting, waiting. I think pictured here are all those attempts, whether it was Pharaoh and the infant boys in Egypt, Athaliah, the queen, trying to wipe out the, the kingly line, whoever it is, all of these attempts by the enemy. And note how singularly focused. So powerful that one sweep of his tail in this apocalyptic imagery will take with it, will drag down a third of the stars from the sky. And yet all his might, all his, his wickedness is focused on this one baby who's not even yet born. You see what I mean when I say Christmas has always been a time of conflict? The war on Christmas is real and it's not people saying happy holidays. 
Did anyone think that had gone away for a while and then all of a sudden it's back and everyone's mad that someone says happy holidays? Might I suggest that the Christ-like thing to do would be to smile and say you too or Merry Christmas or whatever? No, 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 that's nothing. That's no war on Christmas. None of these things that we, we put up on the screen or think about. I mean, so Scrooge wanted Bob Cratchit to work on the 25th of December as a bah humbug at Christmas. Right? The Grinch tried to destroy Christmas, ruin Christmas by stealing all the decorations and all the gifts. The wet bandits years later would do the very same thing and also fail. All of that stuff is amateur hour. Christmas can power through that. That's not the point. Remember, it's about the, it starts with I, incarnation. No, the dragon wants to devour the actual meaning of Christmas himself. This is a turning point in the ancient war as old as time. This is God delivering on his promise. And it comes down to one. There's been this slow kind of, uh, it starts out wide, the seed of the woman. That's everybody. Everyone's going to be the seed of the, the woman, the offspring of the woman. But then we get through the Abrahamic covenant and through the, the uh, Davidic covenant and all these things and through all these prophecies more and more kind of funneling down until we get to one. Like Paul writes in Galatians 3, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ, born on Christmas Day. A bloodline will not ultimately save the people from their sins. An individual will. And so it comes down to a literal birth. And that is, in, of course, kind of included in this wide picture of, of this great and ancient war. And of course, as he waits for the woman to give birth so he can snatch the child away, he makes his move, but he misses as we continue to read. It's a, it's a beautiful release of tension as we read this. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Of course, the, the dragon did not give up once the baby was born. Immediately after, he continues the same old move. Herod comes and tries to kill all the male children in Bethlehem who were born in the past two years, the time period in which he believes that the Messiah must have been born, but God saves him alive. That's a dragon move. Then he's, just, he's back and forth, dragon, serpent, dragon, serpent. Through, through the, the serpent kind of uh, strategy, he gets alongside Peter, Jesus' BFF and the leader of his apostles. And he says to him, you know, wouldn't it be better if we went away without a cross? And Peter says to him, you will never die on a cross. Don't even say it. I won't let it happen. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. That one doesn't work. So then he switches back and forth and back and forth. Ultimately, this dragon move to kill him on a cross. And yet in doing that, what would seem to be the definitive blow against Christ, he seals his own fate. By his wounds, we are healed. His suffering, his chastisement has brought us peace. In verse 5, then, we're told that he's caught up. This, I think, is a picture of the ascension. You say, why, why does it go right to the ascension? Uh, throughout the book of Revelation, seven times it tells the same story, from the first advent to the second advent of Christ, and it focuses more and more and more on the end. Back in chapter 5, there was a beautiful picture of his death and resurrection that's assumed here. And then there's a war in heaven. And you know what's so interesting to me? is You have Michael, the archangel, 
and the dragon fighting one another. And you see in them two completely opposite views of things. The name Michael means who is like God. Who is like God? Satan, in Isaiah 14, said, I will be like the Most High. Satan, the serpent, said to Adam and Eve, you can be like God, knowing good and evil. Jesus leads us away from the, the vaulting up of self. We see the, the opposites happening here, these contrasts. Satan pushing himself up, elevating himself to try to become like God and being cast down. Jesus coming down willingly into Satan's domain, humbling himself to be born of a woman, to die on a cross, and as a result, ascending to the right hand of the Father and being given a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. There's a silly video on YouTube that, that my family and I used to watch called Man vs. Toddler. It was, it was just a series of, it was a song actually, but it was, in it, the video was a series of contests between a grown man and a toddler, like don't spill grape juice and do algebra, and the man wins every time. That's the chorus. Man wins. Obviously, that's why it's funny. But you'd think that a game of dragon versus infant would be just as much a slam dunk, and yet dragon loses. This is the message of Revelation 12. Our enemy stands already defeated. And if we had any doubt, look at this announcement from heaven in verses 10 and 11. I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. He's been thrown down. I believe this is the same event as when Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. With the first coming of Christ, Satan is cast out from a position where he can go, look at that sin, look at that sin, look at those sins, and accuse and accuse in the presence of God, because now, rather than Satan standing between us and God accusing, Christ stands between us and God making peace, interceding on our behalf, presenting us perfectly acceptable to our Lord and Maker. He is cast out, replaced by salvation, power, the kingdom of God, the authority of Christ. His arrival at Christmas, his sacrificial death on the cross, and the empty tomb of Easter have thoroughly defeated the dragon. And this is why he came. In Hebrews 2, we read, Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, that's us. John also tells us the reason Jesus came, the reason he was born in Bethlehem was to destroy the works of the devil. The, the accuser of our brethren has been cast down. Really, probably you don't want a dragon on your nativity scene. That's weird. If you were planning to get one, cross that off your to-do list. He doesn't belong there because he's been cast down. He's been defeated. 
And we see in verse 10 here that the focus of this ancient war and the reason for this cosmic event, the birth of Christ, is us, God's children, that we might be saved. And then in these last few verses, I'll very quickly move through them, the, king, the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth. He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood, but the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Here we have Exodus imagery. The people of God being saved from a mighty river by being borne up on eagle's wings, which is how Zechariah and others picture the Exodus. And again, since it's Christmas Eve, I won't get into the 1,260 days, uh, also three and a half years or 42 months, time, times, and half a time, all the same period of time, which is literally the length of Christ's earthly ministry and symbolically the age we live in now. I won't tell you about how it probably is a reference to the 42 stages of Israel wandering in the wilderness as they're laid out in Numbers 33 and probably also corresponds to the three and a half years when Elijah prayed and it didn't rain, but God kept him and fed him and nourished him in the desert and also kept hidden the prophets of God from Queen Jezebel because that's details you don't need. The point here is that in the book of Revelation, Contrary to popular belief, we don't have a picture of the church being grabbed up out of danger, but rather we see Christ being caught up into heaven and the church remaining and being nourished and kept and protected until Christ's second advent. God cared for Israel in the wilderness as they wandered. He cared for Jesus in the desert as he fasted and was tempted, and he will care for his church now as well. And when the dragon seems to be winning, remember that God is actively nourishing and protecting his people, the God who could keep this dragon from swallowing down his promised Messiah. Even in the midst of suffering and persecution, he will sustain the faithful remnant. They had triumphed over him, we read, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. This is something that resounds through every Christmas story and every Christmas reading. As we talk about the Magi coming from afar to bring him gifts and worship him, or the shepherds being uh, called by the angels to come and adore him and to see for themselves this great thing that God has done and how after they've seen it, they say, let's go and tell everyone this thing which we have seen. This is not good news. You can keep locked up inside because it's the good news of God's victory on our behalf. And it may surprise you, but this text was a more common Christmas text during times of persecution and hostility to the gospel and virulent unbelief. And I have to assume that in places where now the church is persecuted, it is a more common text to be read on Christmas. A reminder that the war is won effectively. Even as we see the dragon, because his time is short, raging against the offspring of the woman, we know that he is defeated. Now I predict that we will see this text make a comeback as a Christmas reading in years to come. Reminding us that we too 
conquer the dragon by the blood of the lamb and by the power of the gospel, our witness. Romans 16, 20, we read, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This is the word of their testimony. Verse 11b, they did not love their lives even in the face of death. They live by what Jesus said. If you find your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. We follow Jesus' example of lowering ourselves, not vaulting ourselves up. And the result, of course, in this backwards way of the kingdom of God is that that is how we find victory. The dragon, the serpent has been cast down. The accuser of our brother can no longer accuse. And so, even while he goes about trying to accuse, I want you to remember the rules of improv. When the dragon says to you, or the serpent slithers up and says, did God really say, did God really say that you were bought with a price? Did God really say that this was decided at Calvary? You don't have to argue. You don't have to say, no, no, hold on, hold on, back up. When he says, but you've sinned, simply say, yes, and. Yes, and I have a sinner far greater than my sin. When you hear him say, but you were born in sin and you can't escape it. Yes, and I've been born again. Oh, and speaking of being born, you couldn't stop the Messiah from being born in Bethlehem or crucified at Golgotha or rising from the grave and ascending to the right hand of the Father. When he says to us, your, your most righteous deeds are like filthy rags in the sight of God, it even says that in the Bible, we say, yes, and I am clothed now in the righteousness of Christ, not my own good deeds. And when he says, but you failed so many times, as you've walked this narrow road, you've stepped off to the left and the right, you've fallen down, yes, and you lost to a baby. I mean, I don't want to be rude, but we were all thinking it. It's a little embarrassing. There's a million mics around here. I should drop one of them. When it feels like a desert in the spiritual world today and that the only water is the river from the dragon's mouth to sweep you away, remember God is caring for you. He shut the mouths of the lions so they couldn't harm Daniel. He kept the dragon at bay so he couldn't devour the Christ child. And he has kept you and I in his providential loving care every day, even to this very hour. That is the good news of Christmas. In the least likely of places, God made his decisive move to put the dragon out of business, to cast him out of heaven, to defeat him, so that we could be victors, so that we could overcome to the end, so that we could be forgiven. That is good news of great joy, and it is for all the peoples. Amen.